The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing where we are just working our fingers to the bone every single solitary week, making sure that you have the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Now, today's show is not about investing in real estate. It is about how you can deal with your your biggest, most dangerous, most unwelcome partner in the real estate business, and that is your local, state, and federal government. We're going to talk today about things that are happening throughout the country in terms of laws that are going to affect you as a real estate investor. We're going to look at some specific things that are going on and talk uh, generally about how you folks, each and every listener, can and should get involved in the ongoing battle to retain and maintain your rights as a property owner and business person. We will be taking calls and emails today. However, because one of my guests is on the phone, you might actually have an easier time getting through to us via our email at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. You can also give the phones a try. 877-772-9658. Now, so I don't just get up on my soapbox and go, as one of my guests recently said, all angry libertarian on all of this stuff. I have two uh, professionals here in the, uh, well, one's in the studio and one's on the phone with me, uh, who are actively involved in the uh, fight for property rights. Uh, First one is Maurice Thompson joining us by phone. He's a constitutional rights attorney, author, commentator, speaker, and most importantly, founder and director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because you have probably seen some of his high stakes constitutional rights cases uh, that he's fought over uh, the last few years. He does uh, legal support for freedom-oriented ballot issues and has defeated state and local governments and agencies in cases involving property rights, taxpayer rights, free speech, parental rights, and this goes on and on and on. He specializes in the Ohio Constitution. He's joining us from his home in Columbus. Welcome, Maurice. Hi, Vina. I guess you could have just said that I'm a professional, angry libertarian. 
a professional. Oh, you get paid to be an angry libertarian? How do I get that job? Apparently law school and then a whole bunch of uh, effort in between. Um, also joining me here in the studio is Dan Acton, who is the legislative director for the nonprofit Ohio Real Estate Investors Association, a position that he has held for the last two and a half years. Uh, like Maurice, Dan is also a real-life real estate investor in addition to being uh, heavily involved in uh, the po- the politics here in the state. He's been involved in over 250 political campaigns in the last 35 years. He's been an OREA member for 20 years. And, fun fact, he has the second most followed Twitter account in the state of Ohio. Congratulations, Dan. Thank you. Pleasure <laughs> to join you. So, so guys... Um, I, I'm sure you guys, you, you you both hear this as well, but because I have the show here and I'm sort of you know visible in the in the RIA community, I get a lot of um, contacts, emails, phone calls of people who are very very upset because something is happening in their city. Um, Maurice, I think you might have your computer on and be on the phone both because we're getting some feedback on your side. So you might need to turn if you're listening to the show while you're also on the phone. You might need to turn that off. Um, so it, it, it's a, it's been a thing, and it seems to me like it's been accelerating over the last ten or fifteen years. That all over the country, um, particularly local governments, seem to be kind of after real estate investors. They want to they want to tax us. They want to fine us. They want to license us. They want to inspect our properties when they're not inspecting the homeowners' properties. Um, Dan, I'm going to start with you. Why do you think that is? Vina, with the local government funds that have been restricted from the state, it's put more pressure on those local communities to try and just fill their coffers, to be honest with you. Many, uh, many of those cases, and Maurice has been involved in those where they want to, they want to charge for inspections, but then they don't want to do the inspections. <laughs> Some little things like that. Um, and it, it is. It's, you know, we, it's increased our cost of doing business and, um, it's just intolerable that they then they want to run around and complain that there are there's not enough affordable housing mm-hmm. after the increased demands that they placed upon us. We all, you know, OREA stands for fair, clean, affordable, and safe housing, but it's increasingly difficult in this kind of economic climate. Mm-hmm. Now, Maurice, you tend to you tend to come at these things uh, less from a legislative angle. Let's go down to city hall and explain to them why what they're doing is wrong. And more from sort of the legal angle of they've already done it and it's not right and now we're going to sue them. From from your perspective, uh, what do you think is behind all of this uh, increased law and regulation and taxing of real estate entrepreneurs? Oh, I think Dan mostly has it right. I think that the role of government has morphed. At one time, many people who worked in government saw the role as maybe protecting the rights of others or something along those lines, or at least kind of running a good, clean ship. Um, today, the holy grail, the guiding philosophy of local government is to try to, quote-unquote, run it like a business, which is how do you extract the most maximum revenue possible from the people under your jurisdiction. And local officials, you listen to them talk, they're constantly worried about how they get more revenue in. Um, they're never worried about how do they reduce costs or make things more efficient. Um, but so, so, you know, revenue maximization has become the holy grail. And, you know, on the one hand, this leads to higher taxes, fees, and fines. Um, and on, on the other, it leads to corruption in that 
if you're getting a lot of uh, tax revenue from, say, hotels, and hotels tell you to ban Airbnb, you're going to want to ban Airbnb. If you're getting a lot of political support from apartments and they say limit the number of people that can live in houses or impose rental inspections, uh, you might see that happening. So um, you see a combination of tax uh, revenue maximization and also good old-fashioned political corruption masquerading sometimes as public safety, public health, or public welfare. Um, <clears throat> am I correct that this seems to be a snowball rolling downhill? That, that you know, 15 years ago there was a little bit of it, and now it's everywhere all the time. Yeah, you're going to see it in more places. I hope that was a question for, for me. But you see it in more places because you see more collaboration than ever before amongst local governments. So more and more there are these fancy conferences. Usually if uh, it's for Ohio local governments, the um, conference will be smack dab in the middle of Ohio in Las Vegas. And they'll fly out there at taxpayer expense and have a weekend discussion over what new regulations they can all implement to maximize revenue. And so, you know, one or two of the cities will have done it, and we'll talk about how much revenue they were able to raise through this and how happy they made their, um, you know, extra governmental partners. So you are seeing the spreading of this. The joke that I always tell that nobody ever laughs at, even though this is on public radio, is that these regulations are like STDs. They spread wildly amongst unsavory characters. <laughs> Very good. With that, we're going to take a quick break and invite listeners to give us a call with anything that's going on in your town, your state, things that you're seeing that, that, that scare you, that you, you're wondering what to do about. Uh, this is a good day to make a call like that because between these two folks, they've got a lot of experience in both the grassroots lobbying type of, of thing and also in just taking on cities head on in court. You can give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. The topic today is legal and legislative issues in real estate investing. And boy, there are a lot of them. I was just actually sent an email from a listener. Um, it is from a, a Fox affiliate in Seattle. And the headline is, Landlord Suing Over Seattle's First Come, First Served Rental Organization uh, uh, Ordinance Say It's Unconstitutional. And I was sort of reading through the uh, article here, and apparently Seattle has passed a law that says that uh, landlords have to accept the first per they can't they can no longer like pick the best tenant, they have to pick the first tenant who who comes through and matches their minimum criteria. And it says that the purpose of this for the city is to level the playing field for renters because you know, it's not fair that somebody who hasn't paid their bills as well doesn't get to live in your house as you know versus somebody who's done a great job of paying their bills and this is pretty typical of uh how the government is uh in regards to housing uh it seems like they cause a problem <laughs> in seattle the problem is they have very severe land use restrictions it's extremely expensive to uh, get zoning or to get a built building permit the the um Laws there are such that it's it's just difficult to provide high-density housing. And then people can't find housing, and so what's the cure? Well, let's have rent control. Let's 
you know, make evictions harder. Let's do all of these things that are, are meant to solve a problem that was created by the government in the first place. So, and I'm going to direct this question to Dan first. When a, a real estate investor in Seattle or Kansas City or someplace that doesn't have a group like OREA that's kind of watching the landscape all the time sees something like this come up, what should their initial reaction be? Like, is it is it go talk to the mayor? Is it write a letter to the editor? Is it sue? What what what, what should they be doing about this? I think it goes before that when you're to become involved in your community. That way you can approach those city council members or city commission members on a friendly basis versus I need a basis. And that's unfortunately where most of us come from. Uh, We wait until there's a disaster happen, then we call that legislative or uh, ordinance 911 issue in. And, you know, just to build that up, but reach out to those council members. The city managers are oftentimes just talking heads for the city councils, but reach out to them. Let them know your displeasure. Obviously, there's strength in numbers. I I can tell you on a local basis, uh, example, in Hamilton, we had an issue where they wanted to cast about six or eight different ordinances. Vina, you were involved in that. but we sent the battle cry out, and we had approximately 350 people show up along with the media, and it was a big, ugly mess. They decided to postpone that and, and see the air in their ways and actually do some studies to try and uh, work with us, which was should not be a novel idea, but unfortunate it is so many times. And I get the impression that um, many times because, uh, you know, a lot of real estate entrepreneurs are busy people. They have jobs and then they also have their rentals or their rehabs that they're doing and they have you know all the usual stuff that people have on their plate and so they literally don't hear about these things until it is at that stage where the city council is voting on it and then to try and put out the battle cry and say let's get 300 people into the room uh, can actually can actually be fairly difficult so many many of these things do pass like they it mm-hmm. like they pass without anybody even knowing that it happens so Maurice, I gather that is where uh, somebody like you steps in on a a law that just you know seems drastically unfair. At what point should a group of real estate entrepreneurs get together and say we ought to think about hiring a lawyer to go after the city about this? Almost right away. I think much of what Dan said is absolutely true. You can have a a good, and he's had a lot of success, kind of rallying the troops against local governments as things were coming up. A lot of times what we're challenging are regulations that have already been on the books for sometimes 10, 20, 30, even 40 or 50 years. And those can, in fact, be challenged. Uh, It's easier to defeat a newer regulation. I think the judge is just more predisposed towards striking laws as unconstitutional if they're new, even though that shouldn't matter. So um, right after a law passes is obviously the best time, but even an older law is fair game. And... You know, in most states, there are public interest lawyers. And in fact, Vina, the case that you reference is one that I'm familiar with because some colleagues of mine at Pacific Legal Foundation are litigating that case, I'm pretty sure, out in Seattle. So there are public interest lawyers all over the country that handle these cases for free, either because they're part of a nonprofit venture that uh, tends to protect the free market and the idea that people should be left alone by government, 
or even if they're not in a public interest law firm, many private lawyers will take on these cases for free because if they win, there's often an opportunity to force government to pay their fees. So most of the time, a real estate investor can find a competent attorney who doesn't cost anything in order to take on these cases, if it's a viable case. Let's, let's talk about that term competent attorney. <clears throat> because when we're well, when, when we're discussing like closings and when we're discussing uh, getting your properties closed or getting contracts drawn up, we always say don't don't go to your divorce lawyer to get your lease drawn up, right? You you need somebody who's sort of a specialist if you want a good outcome. How would how would one give, given that like every lawyer is going to say, oh yeah, sure, I can fight that constitutional case. How how would a how would a person or a group of people pick the one that's actually likely to win? Because losing a case like this is a really bad thing. Sure, you're absolutely right. Losing, you know, the worst thing that you want to do is think that you're doing some societal societal good or charitable charitable um, endeavor by hiring a lawyer to fight city hall, and then that lawyer loses the case, and you made a bad precedent that binds everybody forever. So oftentimes that backfires. Just like I'm not competent to handle uh, a, a title search or a closing or a number of real estate transactional areas, a number of those people aren't competent to handle a constitutional rights case. So I think you want to look at a lawyer's track record. But, but again, uh, one really easy tell sign is are they trying to charge you $20,000 to, to take on this law? If so, the answer is they probably don't know what they're doing or they don't have confidence in the case. And that's when you want to walk away. Interesting. Email here from Drew in Cincinnati. He says, I'm a longtime listener, but a first-time emailer. I'm a landlord in the city of Cincinnati, and if I don't officially register each of my rental properties with the Crown, by which I assume he means the city, I get a $150 fine that hopefully gets added to my county property tax bill twice a year. Is this legal? Yeah, it's a great question. And it we're seeing these all over the state, and I don't know if we're seeing them all over the country. I've only studied Ohio, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're elsewhere. These uh, rental registration fees, uh, vacant building or home um, fees, all kinds of fees for everything under the sun. Because when the cities um, want to raise taxes, they have to put it before the voters, and there's a risk that they might lose the vote. So uh, what you see more and more are backdoor taxes disguised as fees and fines by other names and whether so the issue is if it's an illegal fee or a fine then it's a it's a tax um so it's quite possible that it could be an illegal property tax without a vote if it's really a tax disguised as a fee or fine and that depends on what the money is used for and this is true in almost every state actually um that if the money is used for general government purposes it's almost always going to be an illegal tax, even where the city tries to call it a fee. So you've really got to do a little bit of digging, which I know isn't everybody's favorite thing to do when you've got business to attend to, but try to figure out where's the money going, get an itemization, a breakdown. If it's going into the government's general revenue fund for police, fire, normal functions of government, at that point, it's probably an illegal property tax that can be challenged on that basis. Interesting, because I know, um, Dan, this might predate your tenure as as the legislative director for OREA, but uh, when when this law that allowed counties to counties over a certain population in Ohio to register uh, rental property owners, we were actually in favor of it because 
it was supposed to it was supposed to push out local laws that were registering folks and it didn't do that there's still cities all over the state that are charging additional registration fees on top of what the counties are charging also though it was supposed to be free like it's gone it's gone from we just want your we just want your uh, name and number in case there's a fire and we have to get a hold of you or in case somebody dies in your property that would be terrible if we couldn't get a hold of you to now it's 150 bucks if you don't register well that's the problem you 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 crack the door open and they just kick it in i mean it those fees are inexcusable. One hundred fifty dollars. There, none of your listeners, Vina, would absolutely would could justify one hundred fifty dollars to fill a simple form out mm-hmm. and have them put that in a um, in a searchable document for those public safety officers. We all want. Look, I've had a fire at a property. We all want to be notified. But to say it's you know they need three million. The city of Cincinnati needs three million dollars to do that is a little. Mm-hmm. Well, I read the. I read the uh, um, Franklin County, the Columbus area's um, uh, excuse about going to the max fine of 150 bucks. And of course, the way they put it was, well, this isn't this isn't what it costs. This is how we are punishing people for not doing what they were supposed to do. And yet at the same time, many of these laws, they don't they don't have a way of letting you know that it's the law. Right. I mean, I've met landlords who are like, I'm supposed to register my property. Yeah. For the last seven years, you're supposed to register your property. So we've got this kind of bully in, in the form of our local government with this big old club that's got, you know, fines at the end of it. And we don't even know what we're being bullied about many times. So um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk. Let's all talk a little bit about how investors who are not lucky enough to be in the state of Ohio, where we have the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association sort of monitoring this, and we've got Maurice that we can always call in a panic and say, here's what they did, how, how they can get together and start to uh, pay more attention and do more in the way of legal and legislative action. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, you can give us a call at 877-772-9658, or you can uh, send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I got to tell you guys, Maurice Thompson and Dan Acton, I am getting more emails than I get than I typically get in a month's worth of shows because this is uh, obviously hit a nerve with some people. Um, this one from Russell is more of a comment than a uh, question. He says, "Thank you for the show. While not specifically uh, involving real estate." In many places, there are uh, small, he's, he's in Connecticut, small towns and cities that are getting squeezed by Hartford, especially with the governor, Daniel Malloy, continuing hearing about job losses and that the state has not recovered economically. Despite lower mill property taxes, state taxes on estates are really high. And now GE headquarters is moving out for, as one example. Hope this has some relevance loosely to real estate as economies seem to underpin the value. And... I mean, I think it's a it's a good observation that in places where the taxes have just gotten crazy, New Jersey, property taxes in New Jersey, holy cow, mm-hmm. the amount you pay and what you get for that is to live in New Jersey, unbelievable, <laughs> is resulting in people moving out of high regulation, high tax states and to places like Oklahoma and Texas where things aren't like that. I mean, there is a cost to all of this. There's a cost to all of the laws and regulations. Well, he brings up an excellent point, though, Vina. What happens, though, that local government is going to get, their funding is going to be cut by GE moving. So what's the first thing they do? They don't make it a more economically feasible area for us to do business. 
the first thing they're going to do is come back and try and fill those coffers somehow or another. And they're going to be on the backs of real estate investors, be it homeowners, professional investors, the other entrepreneurs that are out there. But it, it just they attack the very people on that are the foundation of that economic um, life in the cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often say that landlords and rehabbers ought to be being handed medals by the government for what they do, and especially you know, taking the taking the risk and using their own money in a case instead. They are handed uh, so much regulation that Pete, who just sent an email, he doesn't say where he's from, he says, after 25 years, I feel that being a landlord is not worth the effort and money. The, whole, uh, the money in wholesaling and rehabbing is much less regulated. The government is creating an environment for all the, quote, rich landlords to sell their properties to get out of real estate and into the stock market or to become a lender. Who has the money to hire a lawyer to sue the city when the city has one on payroll? The best strategy is going Airbnb or just stay off the title by doing a master lease option. Thanks for the show. I wish I'd found it 25 years ago. So um, this kind of, I don't know, you, you, can, you can just sort of hear in his tone that he's just given up. Like, like for, for, for Pete, you know, he, he feels like his government has beaten him down so badly that he's just, rather than fight it anymore, he's going to get out of the business. Any suggestions, and we'll start with uh, Maurice on this one, for how folks like Pete can get organized and not let the bullying continue like this? Yeah, well, sure. Well, I have to say, first of all, and this is sort of a general business observation, I do encounter, as you can imagine, a lot of entrepreneurs calling me who are so dispirited about their industry's overregulation, and and sometimes it seems like these folks are just ready to get out of get out of business altogether, and it has less to do with the government regulations, which can be beaten and can be overcome, than about maybe some of the other challenges, and, and that's the real. That's the real rub about the the regulations that we're talking about. Is business is already difficult enough. You know, if you're doing, if you're in the landlord business, you already have a number of problems with tenants and repairs and all kinds of legitimate business concerns. That the last thing you need is government piling on. And it is important for government to hear that message from landlords and, and investors. And you know. To your point earlier, Vina, there's simply no union for landlords and real estate investors. Uh, it hasn't been traditionally anyway. I think OREA is trying to do that here in Ohio. But that does make it more difficult to, um, to make your voice louder. But you, you know what? If you still have some fight in you and you want to be in the business, uh, and you really do, uh, every business is overregulated, and you're going to encounter overregulation um, almost no matter what you do, you know, this gentleman suggested Airbnb is another option. Well, many cities are, are banning Airbnb altogether or severely curtailing its use. So there's no utopia. And at some point, if you've got a business and it's working for you otherwise, you do have to stand up and fight uh, for what you have. And that means maybe hiring the lawyer or hiring the lobbyist and going toe-to-toe with government and overcoming some of these regulations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can tell you from many years of experience, and you know, I just I feel I feel very lucky to be here in Ohio, and not one of these places where uh, it's actually uh, difficult to find like-minded people who are willing to stand up and fight. Here, here, here in Ohio, man, we just we fight right and left. So, Dan, can you speak a little bit to the value of um, 
real estate associations in in this fight and especially to groups that are out there that what they mostly do is what they think they're there for, which is education, how, how they could get organized to uh, start standing up to some of this. It's a relationship business, and it's no different than when Maurice started his practice out. It's reaching out to those folks. I would encourage those smaller organizations or even the medium-sized organizations that don't focus on that to start bringing in those local representatives to speak with their groups, to to have some familiarity with them so that when a problem comes up, you're approaching them as a friend or as a neutral, not as an adversary. You can They're very much more willing to speak with you if you've dealt with them, if you've helped them, if you serve on one of their parks boards or the zoning board or zoning appeals board, but get involved in your community. And that way you see it firsthand. You can kind of, it, it's pretty interesting. We had a smaller group in the city of Middletown, Ohio mm-hmm. that started up an informal group. They just met for coffee. Uh, the local coffee house up there owned by a real estate investor and it grew and grew and it's, you know, they probably have 35 people that meet monthly and they got so irritated with some of the proposals that Middletown had. Vina, you you joined us up there for that, Mm -hmm. for that battle also. Several years ago, they looked at doing some pretty ugly things toward real estate investors. And um, again, we brought the red shirt brigade in up there, a few hundred people, clogged city hall, the fire, fire marshal shut down the uh, (laughs) meeting from having any more people enter. And, um, you know, they, they went back and started speaking with them. And out of that, uh, one of the gentlemen that was very active in that ran for a council seat. So, you know, we actually have someone that's there to speak up for the group and for real estate investors. And it's made a world of difference. Things up there are now much more, it's a much more level playing field. It's a great, uh, Middletown has gone from a very economically challenged city to one that's, Quite frankly, Vina, it's a buy area as far as I'm concerned. Um, hmm. Certainly gone from blue collar to you know, there's there's some white collar jobs in up there and some great opportunities. Very good. Um, and by the way, to, for any real estate investor association listeners, uh, members, uh, group leaders who are listening and thinking, yeah, we need to get around to that. We really need to get around to, you know, having a Dan Action who gets, actually gets paid to go and monitor what's happening at, at the state house and go talk to people and press the flesh. Um, Ohio Rea is always willing to help with that. You know, we've had, we've had uh, uh, many groups that have come to us and said, we'd like to see what you're doing. And in fact, as of May, uh, Indiana now has a state group and is having their first uh, convention to raise money for the same thing that we do here. Um, lobbying and, you know, a, they're going to form a pack and all of those things that would be good for real estate investors to do. So let's um, let's get, let's let's hear some good news. Like I'm, <laughs> we're, we're, we're sort of here going, oh my god, it's so terrible, it's so overregulated. Um, Maurice, you just had a really big win on an, a, a thing that uh, Oria has been interested in that I know you've been fighting for at least two years. Can you talk about the point of sale inspections? Sure. So a lot of Ohio real estate investors have made it a priority to address these government inspections first. So we focused there. We started focusing there in 2014 with rental inspections. And once we defeated rental inspections, we used the same constitutional theory to challenge point of sale or pre-sale inspections. So um, for those who are unaware, 
uh, rental inspections are mandatory government inspections where you can't rent a home out to somebody until it, you get and pass a government inspection that you have to pay for, and that is an inspection that is often very arbitrary and has a, a government official rather than a private inspector in your home telling you what sort of changes you need to, be, need to make to the home before you can rent it out. And I, I think even more insidious are these point-of-sale and pre-sale inspections that are basically parallel to the rental inspections. Instead, it's that you can't sell your home. So you can have a willing buyer, just like you have a willing renter in the rental context, uh, you can have a willing buyer who might be an investor who wants a property that needs to be painted, wants a property that needs some electrical or plumbing work so that that, that investor can make more off the deal, um, but is prohibited from buying the house in that condition. And you are prohibited from selling it to him in that condition unless until you pass the government inspection and comply with the government mandates, which sometimes, you know, cracks in the, in the sidewalk, cracks in the asphalt of the driveway. We're talking about the color that certain rooms are painted. Uh, they're not neutral enough, you know, sometimes for the government. So um, you've got to pay $100, $200 inspection fees for these things, and we thought this was pretty bad and something that we could stop. So we have stopped it. We've, um, we've won rental and point-of-sale challenges using the Fourth Amendment primarily, challenging these as warrantless inspections in both the northern and southern districts of Ohio now. So these things are pretty much wiped out throughout the state with some caveats that I'm happy to address later. Um, and we've also certified class actions to recover the illegal inspection fees that people have been forced to pay for the last six years. So they should be able to also get their money back because they've been forced to pay 60 to to $100 usually for these inspection fees, uh, which were illegal inspections. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, <clears throat> that is a huge win. It is something that half the country is listening and saying, that's not real. They don't, they don't really come into your house and like before you sell, you can't sell your own house without fixing it, even if the buyer wants to fix it. <laughs> but to folks in, to folks in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Indiana, where these are extremely common, like they're, they're more common in Michigan than there are here in Ohio. How would they, t like, how, do, how does this ruling affect them? How would they take it and stop point-of-sale inspections in their cities? Well, we do most of these cases in federal court whenever possible. And the reason for that is that federal courts are much more likely to apply federal law, in this case the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, to the facts at hand, and that makes it much more transferable. So what we have is a number of rulings from federal courts indicating, look, under the Fourth Amendment, you can't do a warrantless general search of the interior of a house. A house is specifically enumerated as a protected area uh, under the Fourth Amendment. The most private area, arguably, in all of human history uh, is probably the American home. So and it doesn't matter if it's a rental home or a vacant home or if you live in that home. It's entitled to absolute protection and privacy, particularly from government agents just coming in and having a look around for whatever they can find. So um, that, you know, that federal constitutional law is out there and is a precedent that anybody can use in any of these other states and is entirely trans transferable. Uh, another federal judge would just have to say, I just disagree with all of these rulings uh, over there in Ohio. I think they're all wrongly decided. Um, and that's it's highly unlikely. So even though these aren't Supreme Court precedents, 
Uh, they're based on Supreme Court precedents, and they're logical extensions of those Supreme Court precedents. So you, you just hire a lawyer in your area to to weaponize what we're doing here in Ohio. And not the one who did your divorce. Right. Ooh, ooh <laughs> you didn't go there. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some issues that we're seeing uh, upcoming. What's what's in the future for the legal and legislative world in terms of real estate investing? We'll also take your emails at askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today about the the landslide of regulation and taxation and fees and fines and all of that (laughs) nasty stuff that seems to be coming at real estate entrepreneurs at an increasingly increasing rate. And some listeners are at the point where they just don't want their names on properties anymore. They want to be lenders. They want to wholesale. They want to fix and sell, but they do not want to be landlords. And that is unfortunate because um, without the small landlords, where do people live? (laughs) Small landlords own a huge percentage of the um, particularly single-family rental housing in the United States. And when you look at the affordable section of that, I, I would I don't have statistics on this, but I would bet that 90 to 95% of the affordable housing in this country is owned by folks like Maurice and Dan Absolutely. and I. Absolutely. And not, <clears throat> not by the giant management companies that, you know, own A apartments in A areas. So... It's, it's, it's bad, and it's going to get worse if we don't fight it. So uh, turning to Dan, um, I know that the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association is constantly um, scanning both the state and local environments here in Ohio, looking at stuff that's coming down the road that's going to affect real estate entrepreneurs. And uh, in addition to you, who I think your official position is legislative director, uh, we actually have a a lobbyist as well, somebody who's uh, stationed there in Columbus. And <clears throat> when you walked in here, you ha- you handed me what has to be 15 pages of, yes. <laughs> of bills that we are tracking in one way or another because they could have uh, effects on um, us as real estate entrepreneurs. And let's just hit some of the, I don't know whether to call them high points or low points here, because um, I know one of the things that people are very concerned about right now is uh, a proposed land contract legislation that uh, my understanding is came out of a legislator in Youngstown who was very upset about the activities of a handful of kind of bad guy hedge fund out of town owners who did some things that maybe they shouldn't have done in regards to land contracts. And if this law passes, None of us are going to be doing land contracts. Well, that's true, Vina, and it was the, the the genesis for that were two extremely large out-of-state companies that came in, and allegedly there were some shady practices going on. I'm sure there's where there's smoke, there's fire, but the problem of it is, and I've spoken to you, so I guess I could interview you then <laughs> on your own show. I mean, you've had personal experience with people whose first opportunity to actually be part of that American dream by buying a home was through a land contract. And, you know, how with a lot of those being minority investors keeping in with a theme for Martin Luther King Jr.'s with the 50th anniversary of his death, um, many minorities, this is their first opportunity to purchase part of the American dream 
is through a land contract. And you know, if those are taken away, I think it's, I think the bill is uh, just, it's certainly not well received on my end. And many investors like you have, have shown some panic in it. And I, with, with due cause. Well, I can tell you that uh, I bought my first house on a land contract. The first house I ever lived in, I bought on a land contract because I was 22. I had student loan bills. I had credit cards. You know, I had all the. I didn't. I didn't know what a credit score was, but the bank did. <laughs> they, they were not willing to talk to me about uh, making a making a mortgage loan. And I bought a house that needed work because I was able mm-hmm. to do it cheap. I was able to buy it cheaply. And my husband and I got in there, and every evening and every weekend we were up to our elbows in drywall mud and tile grout and everything else. And we we did probably fifteen thousand dollars worth of work to the house and lived in it for ten years and sold it at a profit. None of which could have happened had some individual investor not been willing to take the risk on somebody who didn't fit into the mortgage mold, right? And that's gotten even worse since uh, since Dodd Frank uh, came around and this idea of the qualified mortgage where people have to have to fit a very specific set of requirements in terms of income credit uh, debt to income ratio banks just cannot work with some of these folks even if they would like to and it's just it's been my experience that every time the government reduces housing choice every time they make it harder to buy a house every time they make it harder to build a house bad things happen and this is a great example uh, of how bad things could happen and trust me if it's happening here it's going to happen in every state the first time i actually heard about land contracts being frowned upon was out of new jersey and I don't know what they ended up doing with their uh, law, but it just it seems to travel from place to place to place to place to place. And, uh, and Marie spoke to that earlier. They have these organizations nationwide where they all get together and have their little soiree. And how do we how do we how do we raise funds off the backs of our of our residents? And that's a good example of. You know, something gone awry without a mm-hmm, doubt. Mm-hmm. And Maurice, I know that you've you've been very interested in tracking uh, these ordinances that, that typically are coming from cities about uh, Airbnb. You mentioned it briefly uh, a little while ago, and I know you yourself have in the past uh, used rooms in your house as an Airbnb uh, situation, so I suppose it's more personal to you than some of these other things might be. But I know that uh, Cincinnati just passed an ordinance saying that um, unless you live in the house, you can only use it as an Airbnb for 90 days a year. So in other words, if you bought the property intending that you'd be an Airbnb landlord, you are now restricted to doing that a total of 90 days a year. Uh, what what, What is going on there and what do you what do you think is going to happen in the future with this? What's going on there is what I mentioned earlier, which is that the hotel lobby is a very powerful political lobby, and there tends to be a combination of a few factors. One is the noisy neighbor, not in my backyard phenomena, where there's one complaining neighbor, perhaps at most. The second, of course, is the political power of the hotel lobby, which is stuffing money into politicians' drawers every time they have lunch together. And then the third is just a general uh, paternalism, a general arrogance that pervades local government officials um, that, uh, where they think they know how your property should be used better than you are. And this applies uh, whether you're talking about the land contract uh, context, the Airbnb context, or, or another issue that we're litigating, which is occupancy limitations. We're, we're suing a city in Ohio 
over occupancy limits. Uh, you can only rent to three unrelated people, even if you have a six or even a ten bedroom house, rather than to six or ten people, um, even if you have parking for those people. So it's just the notion that government knows better than you do, as opposed to the, the principles upon which the country was founded, which are the notion that two uh, intact adults should have the freedom to contract, to make any contract and to use their property in any way they wish to that doesn't directly inflict harm upon others. And you see in many state constitutions and still in some federal constitutional principles that these principles can be vindicated through litigation in one way or another. And we think we can do that on the Airbnb front, too. You know, the idea is that government can regulate your property if it's a nuisance, if it's imposing harm upon another. You can enforce uh, noise ordinances, for example. But these sort of prophylactic prior restraints on a use of property that might offend somebody or might be harmful are obscenely arbitrary. They're usually vaguely written. Uh, and they usually make distinctions that are completely irrelevant to the harm actually caused. So we are looking at uh, litigating those issues actively where we have the opportunity to do so because, you know, like we're talking about earlier, government's driving up costs on homeowners, higher property taxes, uh, higher fees and fines of other kinds. It's all the more reason why people might want to rent out a portion of a larger home they have or rent out a second home that they have through Airbnb instead of through um, you know, these longer-term tenancies that have all these other regulations that attach to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dan, in the one minute we have left, what's up in the future here for the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association's lobbying efforts? Vina, there actually is some good news out there. We have a couple bills that we're very, uh, very interested in. One of them is the property value contest. It's the resolutions. It's by Representative Derek Marin from the Toledo area. It requires those local governments, those school boards, basically, who are using attorneys as uh, basically real estate bounty hunters to increase property values artificially. Uh, they're coming in with their $3,000 suits, $600 shoes, and saying, Vina, your property is worth 40% more than what it what it actually is. And um, they're trying to get you to ne- negotiate down some, and you know, it's all profit for them. They get a percentage of it. It's pretty astounding. Uh, There is a bill right now, House Bill 343, that would require those school boards to pass a separate resolution for each of those parcels. (laughs) Some of the school boards were testifying that they didn't know. Very good. So um, both of these organizations, OREA and 1851 Center for Constitutional Law, are nonprofit organizations. Maurice, how would folks get a hold of 1851 to learn more or make a donation? We are at ohioconstitution.org. We don't take any government money, and we do survive basically on the generosity of our donors. So if folks are interested in what we do, uh, they can donate to us at ohioconstitution.org or uh, get a hold of us otherwise there. All right, great. And uh, Dan, to get in touch with you, orea.com? Orea.com. O-R-E-I-A.com. Thank you guys for joining us tonight, and thank you listeners for all of your great questions and input. And get out there and fight the power. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. 